and there are things like that where you just let the defense know, hey, would you want to do this? Would you want to go home? Because meteors can violate the golden rule. We can say, put yourself in their shoes. You can't. <laughs> and I think that helps humanize situations where we get too focused in the medicine of it. And, and I remind people, this person has a name. This isn't patient 1136. This is Mrs. Thompson, who, when she left for work that day, was trying to go live her life. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me this morning is my co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, Lester. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, our listeners don't care when we record the podcast, but it's a Saturday morning and a a great time to do a podcast. So I'm really, really excited about today's episode. It is. I've got my coffee I'm fully caffeinated. I got it in my nice See You in Court coffee mug, uh, and I'm looking forward to a great uh, interview with our guest today. Let me tell our listeners a little bit about our guest. Uh, Today, we're thrilled to have with us Georgia lawyers and mediators, Rex Smith and Greg Parent. They're both with Miles Mediation, and we're going to talk about the wisdom of mediation today. Let me tell you a little bit about each guest. Rex Smith uh, was admitted to the Georgia Bar in 1976. Uh, He went to undergrad at Georgia State and then UGA Law School and graduated from UGA Law School in 1976. Um, And he he practiced law, uh, I think mainly as a defense lawyer, for 40 years and tried over 100 cases when he was practicing and then got into mediation. And we're going to let Rex tell us about how that happened. Um, but now has done over 3,000 mediations, so definitely an expert at mediation um, and certainly has mediated for me, as has our other guest, Greg Parent. Um, and uh, the, the little-known fact I'll tell you about Rex is that he wins the tailgate award at the UGA football games because he's got an unbelievable setup and lots of friends, and I always – I missed it this year, obviously, because of COVID, but I always enjoy on a football Saturday going by to say hello to Rex and his friends and family. It's a lot of fun. And then uh, also with us today is Greg Parent. Greg is a double heel, which is important. That means he went to UNC undergrad and UNC law school, graduated from UNC law school in 1998. And that's important because tonight is the showdown uh, in Cameron Indoor Stadium with uh, UNC at Duke. So several several of us have some UNC clothing on today. Um, but Greg, uh, double heel, he was also um, a lawyer for a long practicing lawyer, a defense lawyer, I believe, mainly. Um, but he was also a claims adjuster for an insurance company, defense attorney. Then he did a little plaintiff's work, and then he went into mediation. And he has mediated over 1,500 mediations, so also an expert and has obviously um, done very, very well and has mediated, I don't know how many for me, 
uh, and my clients, but a bunch. Um, and the little known fact besides that he's a double heel, I'll tell you, is that Greg is a fantastic photographer and that is one of his big hobbies and I enjoy seeing his work. Um, so Rex and Greg, welcome to the show. Greg, Greg, I think Greg is also the unofficial mayor of Grant Park too. True. Uh, you know, the, every time I go to Grant Park, you know, everybody knows Greg down there. So, well, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you, Rex and and Greg. And um, you know, our our listeners, we we are hoping to educate uh, lay lay people first. Uh, we're sponsored by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, and we thought we would use this show to educate the the, the folks out there about what is a mediation and um, and why mediate. So, I know our name of our podcast is "See See You in Court," which is probably the antithesis of what you want to happen after a mediation, but we appreciate your being on nonetheless and helping us uh, navigate the waters of mediation today. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, I'd like for to hear a little bit about your background. Tell us how you got to this spot of, of doing mediation and only doing mediation full time, all the time. Um, tell us a little bit first, Greg, about your career and what led you to mediation. Sure. Robin, I found when I was practicing as an attorney that I was either cursed or blessed, depending on how you want to look at it, at being able to see both sides. And uh, partners that you do work for don't always want to hear the merits of the other side when you're trying to do a brief or report or, or advocate for your client. Um, early in my career, when I got to go to mediation, I, I enjoyed the format. I enjoyed being out of the office and getting to work with people. But you know, mediation was specifically targeted, I thought, in trying to get to resolution, not just trying to win for your client. And sometimes that involves some give and take, but it was a process I always believed in and liked. And I remember going to some mediations where I would, um, I would ask to talk to the other room instead of the mediator to talk with the other room and try and broker a deal and, and realize we could have some success. But early in my career, someone told me, hey, you, you'd be good at this. You just you need to get a few gray hairs. You need to get some years behind you. And uh, so I, I always held it up as something maybe down the road one day. So Greg, why, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna jump in here. You know, everybody sees trials on television. You know, even, even if it's only the five minute version, for folks who have never participated in a mediation, what, what what's that like? Does it involve everybody in the same room yelling at one another? Um, I mean, I I know, but I'd like you to uh, kind of describe the process for us. Sure. Um, the mediation comes, and let's let's just assume it's a two party personal injury case. Um, what I typically do is meet with each party that morning, and, and usually the attorneys have provided me with some materials in the weeks or days before, and I've reviewed it, and I'm up to speed on both the law and the particular facts of this case. But I'll go into each room, and, and I really focus on the plaintiff. The defense attorney and the adjuster have probably done as many mediations as I've done. Uh, the plaintiff's attorney has done as many, many mediations. But for the client, it's, it's new territory, so I spend a lot of time uh, helping welcome them. I'll orient them to the office so they feel comfortable. You know, these are regular people who are coming in to talk about the worst day of their life often. And we have to have that compassion. This isn't just a regular day for us. It's, it's like what I used to hear when uh, you hear old baseball players who always legged it out like DiMaggio or Babe Ruth. They always played really hard because it might be someone's first game ever seeing them. So they wanted to give them a good show. I always put that pressure on myself to give a good show, to bring my best. And so I'll, I'll talk to that person, try and orient them, try and demystify the whole process, find some common ground. 
whether it's their Georgia cap, uh, a song, you know, the weather, something. I'm going to try and build a quick bond. And then I get the parties together for an opening session. And that opening session, Lester, is, is something that is largely for the plaintiff as well to kind of let them know who the decision maker is. They probably never met the adjuster. I'll, I'll elevate the adjuster and show them that this is an important part of the decision-making team that's going to affect their fate that day. And then I try and show some command of the room to let them see that, hey, there is someone here who is completely neutral, a referee that's going to try and keep balance to both sides. Now, you've known me. <laughs> you both know me, Robin and, and Lester. You know my style. I'll use humor. I'll tell stories that show, hey, I've known Robin for a long time. I've known Lester for a long time. And I'm not trying to buddy-buddy and make it look like a, a frat party, but I am trying to show that I know everyone on both sides. And then as Robin alluded to with my background, I get to point out that I've been the adjuster, the defense attorney, and the plaintiff's attorney. And that usually builds and, and earns me a lot of credibility with that new person to the mediation who's the plaintiff. So Rex, how's he, do, how's he doing here? Critique is get, get, on a scale of one to 10, how, how's he doing? Out of 10, A plus. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I thought that was excellent. I, I learned a lot. Rex, tell us a little bit about how you got into mediation and your approach. Uh, Robin, like everything else in my life, just dumb luck. Um, uh, I, I got a call one day from Clay Porter. Y'all may know Clay, and, uh, and he uh, asked me if I'd mediate a case. And I said, Clay, I don't know anything about being a mediator, uh, so I, I'm, I'm not really going <laughs> to do that. And about a week later, he called me back and said, Rex, everybody knows you. It's a, it was a brain injury case. And I was doing a lot of brain injury work back then. Uh, and the main thing is just the science on the, on the damages. Would you do it for us anyway? And I said, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And to make a long story short, we got together and uh, worked late into the night and got the case settled. And it just was thrilling. I just was so excited that we were able to get it done. And um, so I took the class uh, uh, back at Abe Ordover's old shop and uh, signed up. And I was trying to get them to get me on their panel and they, they never would call me back or anything. And, and I called them another time or two and they never would call me back. So I called Ed Henning. And of course, y'all all know Ed. And Ed said, absolutely, <laughs> come on over. And in the same car ride where I'd called Ed, uh, Abe's group called and said, we'd like to talk to I mean, within five minutes, and I've been trying to get him to call me for a month. And then once you got in Ed's clutches, he, he, he just took, took me under his wing, showed me the ropes, and, and did what Ed does, just uh, loved on me and, and got me started in it. And 3,000 mediations later, here you are. <laughs> right. Still trying to find that acorn that Lester talked about earlier. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I have to tell you, I had a, I, I, I think I've mediated one case, and I had a similar experience. Had two lawyers call me, and uh, and and you know, I as you guys know, as representing a party, I've done a ton of uh, you know, ton of those, but I'd never been the mediator, and uh, and 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 I did it that one time, and I was like, damn, this is really hard work, you know, and it and it gave me a whole different perspective. On what you all, what you guys have to do every day to try to get, to try to get two parties to to agree with one another, and whereas for the parties, and I, I think Greg, uh, I, I don't know if he quite got there, but after the opening session, you kind of divide them up into separate rooms, and you spend your whole day going back and forth from one to the other. And uh, so if you're a party, you know, like you're on for 15, 20 minutes, maybe 45, then the mediator leaves, you sit there with your client. 
But uh, if you're the mediator, you're working the whole the whole time, uh, you know, except when you slip down to your office to get a shot of bourbon to keep your nerves <laughs> even or whatever, you know. So, Lester, don't let the secrets get out now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't tell Rex. I didn't tell him. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, in, in that process where you're going as the mediator, go, mediator going back and forth, back and forth. Um, so you leave my room and I'm there with my clients. I, my clients often, often have to calm them down at that point, um, convince them they're doing the right thing. They get a little nervous when you're not there in the room with them and they're wondering, what's he doing with the other side? You know, they get suspicious about, about it. Can you? Can you tell us about that and how you handle that? Rex, you want to go first or me? You go, Greg. Um, you know, when we leave your door and, and shut your door, uh, I don't know about you, Rex, but I kind of take a moment to process. And the first part I have to do sometimes, and not just you, Robin, but tamp down some of the rhetoric and find the uh, euphemisms to <laughs> convey what was just said to me. You go tell that so-and-so, and I've got to find my nice words and euphemisms to kind of uh, parlay that, but I'm also building sort of like the quarterback's audible list. You know how quarterbacks go in with their plays on the arm. You're, you're the coach in your room, Robin, and let's say Lester's opposing counsel. He's a coach in that room. I've got to add things to my arm, and, and what I tell them, and I seek the permission of the parties, hey, I'm going to convey what you want me to convey, but you're going to have to trust me on the timing of when to do that, and, and I, I'm asking you for your permission to I'm going to put it here for right now. I may not say it this time or the next time. I'll convey it, and I'll convey what you want me to, but trust me on reading the room. And I think that's a valuable thing we see. One of the things that I, I got to benefit from in my uh, growth as a mediator, you know, Rex is a trailblazer. I don't know who he looked up to, but I got to look up to folks like Joe Murphy and David Nutter and John Miles when I got to Miles Mediation. And, and not only did I observe them, but I got to talk with them every day. Every day I got to get like a little debrief and learn like a little nugget of wisdom. And I remember going to a breakfast one time and uh, with Rex, I just called him out of the blue. He met me and he spent a morning's breakfast, just listening to me, talking to me and sharing information. And I, I think I look normal, but in my brain, I'm trying to write down every little thing he's saying, like mentally giving like a, a scoop reporter, taking down every nugget. And he was so generous with his information. And, and, you know, to have us both on here, I'm trying to play it cool. Like I belong here. But it's really something that, to say Rex's name and my name in the same sentence because he's such a, a talented mediator that we all look up to. And, and I've had the good fortune of having a Joe and David to talk to, then a Susan Forsling, and now a Rex. So I, I've been, uh, if Rex got it by dumb luck, I, I'm more of a great uh, maturation, <laughs> maybe a John Miles plan to grow me. Um, but those are some of the things that we do. And before I get into the other room, I... I think about my audience and a way to speak to them. Lester, you and I have uh, mediated before, and sometimes you have folks who um, are off the scale, men's a smart, and sometimes you have folks who, God love them, they are dumber than a bag of hammers, and they're all deserving of our respect. And so sometimes you have to check your SAT vocabulary and your LSAT prep and just talk to folks like folks. And, and you do it in two fashions, I think. One with body language, you guys know me. I'm not a little man, <laughs> not the biggest guy in the world, but I look like an out of shape linebacker. So sometimes you'll see me make myself small, very approachable. Sometimes I have to lean in and, and convey that I really mean business.
but there's a, there's a whole lot of mental checklists and we're actually probably do it effortlessly where we're going through how to talk to people and how to convey information in a way that they can hear it and process it and when they're ready for it. So, you know, if, if you saw our brain, it would look like a machine just whirring. <laughs> So uh, I, 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 that, that, that's a visual, Greg, you know, your brain whirling there. I'll, I'll have to take that. So I, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to put you both on the spot uh, just a little bit here because, uh, you know, one of the, one, one of the th questions frequently asked by lawyers is, are, are, are there certain mediators that you want for certain cases? Uh, which I guess by, by extension means there are certain mediators you wouldn't want for certain cases, but I'm, I'm focusing on the, on the, uh, on the positive here. And, and, you know, that's true with lawyers as well. You know, like uh, Robin and I do probably 80% of the same kind of stuff, but, you know, she's tried, uh, she's tried employment discrimination cases. I've never actually tried an employment discrimination case. I've tried felony criminal cases. I, I don't know if Robin's ever tried a, a felony, felony criminal case. I, I've tried one murder trial. Oh, oh, that's it, great. You have, that's it right. Was my, I, I it was my it. first and my last. Oh. <laughs> it's a different, you know, I've tried, I've tried a couple, I've tried a couple of murder cases and it, they are, they're very different. Um, so I, I, I want uh, each of you to tell me what uh, case, and I'm going to start with Rex, uh, since he's got the most gray hair there like me. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to put you on the spot and I, I want you to tell me uh, honestly and, and without false humility, what kind of case you think you're the best at, you know, that you, that you feel like is really your niche. And, uh, and, and then tell me the same thing about, about Greg, about, you know, a particular type of case that, uh, that you think Greg's best. And, and then let's hear from, let's hear from Greg and give him a turn. Well, uh, I'm not real sure I'm best at anything. I <laughs> But um, but I, but the the basic premise, Lester, that you just laid out, are some uh, mediators better at some cases? I completely agree with that. Um, you know, sometimes you need a blue ribbon mediator. You need someone who has a lot of experience in that particular case, whether it's a medical malpractice case or a products liability case. Uh, but I think there's also sociological factors. Uh, you may have. Um, I, I tried a lot of sexual assault in apartments and hotels and, and uh, property uh, cases. And I learned over time that for the defense that a, uh, an attorney, um, uh, I, I hired an attorney who was a female uh, a prosecutor in sexual assault cases to try those cases. I think it's the same th way in, in mediation that sometimes you may have a plaintiff that would be more comfortable with an African-American, or you may have a, uh, a, a plaintiff who's more comfortable with a woman, or you may have a very complex engineering case where you need a mediator that has a lot of experience um, related to construction or engineering or that type of thing. Or, uh, so the basic premise I to totally agree with. In terms of uh, cases, I think Greg Parent is good in, uh, I would say basically everything. Uh, the one thing you don't know, Greg Parent, very long before you know that you've met someone who sincerely loves people and appreciates people. And I think that comes across every time he meets someone, uh, whether it's just having a cup of coffee or whether it's mediating, uh, he is going to connect particularly with the plaintiffs, that they, they will feel his sincerity, 
his humanity. If there's one thing that I think uh, really stands out with Greg, it's his desire uh, and his respect and his love of people. Can, can we take a time out so I can call my mom and dad and, and just have <laughs> you read that? Can we just run that back, Rex? They're in Gaston. Just speak your, up. Your, oh, your parents are welcome to, to become listeners to our podcast, yeah, Greg. Tell uh, them we'll, to subscribe. We'll send them a, a special invitation and we'll even send, we'll send your parents a coffee cup too. Send them a mug. And, uh, and the other thing is, everybody on this podcast knows what I just said is absolutely true. Lester knows it, Robin knows it, and everybody that knows him knows it. Oh, absolutely. That, that as well as, uh, you know, I, I asked for no uh, humility, but a- asking Rex to not be humble is uh, is a tall task because he is one of the most uh, uh, humble and self-effacing uh, people that I know. And it and it's to his everlasting credit because he has tremendous accomplishments that he could uh, spend hours telling us about if he really wanted to. Oh, no. Greg, tell us a, your your position on on Rex and and you and yourself. Well, let me tell you why I, why I appreciate having Rex come to Miles. He came. It's been two three three years now. Two years. Two years. Two years. Two years. Uh, I remember the day he came over. He came over and and you know we, we sometimes see mediators from other shops, and I walked over to him and said, "Hey, what are you doing?" He goes, "He said I'm going to be here," and I immediately got excited and I, I think we posed a picture in front of the the future of resolution thing in the, in the hallway. And I was so excited uh, to see it. You know, I thought I knew a few things after mediating for a while. I'd been mediating maybe nine years before Rex came over. And then I realized what it means to mediate by watching what Rex does. Um, he has such a command over the high volume kinds of cases and the high level cases that I didn't even know existed until maybe a few years ago when he got here. Uh, after Rex got there, um, people got to see who I was. So he kind of opened doors to levels I didn't know existed. And what Rex does, mediations can go, as you know, four to six, eight hours on a regular one. A long one could take you till midnight. A really long one could be a couple of days. Um, even if Rex mediates for two hours in a day, he works a 10-hour day every day. Um, he's he's preparing and, and people send him, you know, treatises that he devours and knows. If you look at his notes, it looks like something out of a beautiful mind, that movie. You'd have to have a (laughs) keystone to decipher everything he's going through. Um, He knows everyone, he talks to everyone. He's a true Southern gentleman. Um, And and he can't walk down our hallways without people from other mediation stopping him. And he'll, you know, he doesn't say it like this. I'm just gonna do some artistic creation, but it's the equivalent of going, How's your mom and them? And, and with just everyone that he knows and, and he talks with them and sees them. And so I get to sit at that hand and watch him. I get to watch Susan and Joe and David and, and I'm, I'm a pretty good pupil, but, but it's because I get to watch and see people who've mastered the craft. So that's Rex to me in a nutshell. I, I tend to agree what he said that there might be ones where a certain background is better, but what Rex is too humble to admit is I think he looks at every mediation as one he can do. It's just a matter of whether he has to study up a little bit more on, on a certain subject area. And, and what I've found is if there are people who like the way you mediate, they'll teach you what you need to know for that case and that law. I've had folks say, hey, I need to come in a little bit early to cover this law with you. Do you mind? And I'll say, no, not at all. Or they'll, I'll, they'll say, hey, can you do this kind of case? Because we really need you, but I don't know if you know this kind of law. And I said, well, can you send me something? Yes. And then watching what Rex does, I, I learn it and devour it and try and know it. I'll tell you one quick story, Lester, because 
Rex isn't wrong sometimes. You know, people want an African-American mediator for an African-American client. Well, I had an adjuster, her name was Pam Burdett, and she asked me to, she asked me whether I would travel for a mediation. And I said, sure, what's travel? I'll go anywhere. And so she had me go into North Georgia. And when I got there, the plaintiffs looked like the Soggy Bottom Boys from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And the defense looked like ZZ Top. You know, all of them longer beards. It looked like Hatfield McCoys. I just remember looking at her going, you must really think I'm good because these aren't folks who look like me. You know, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. And uh, we ended up getting it done. And it became sort of a teaching moment for me that, that you know, meteors like Rex and me, the, the folks I've mentioned before, Susan, David, Joe, and really a lot of the people at our panel, we can fit any sort of dynamic you need. We just might need a little bit of coaching up, um, you know, on the eve of a mediation to get us around the certain few nuggets. And it's not so much understanding the four elements of, of negligence. It's more learning how to say things, learning how to digest things so we can translate it to regular folks. Um, you know, uh, when I'm talking to someone, I'll say, listen, in a nursing home case, for example, you know, we don't think that this facility caused the bed sores. You know, the doctors are, the doctor's notes call them decubitus ulcers. I don't need to go in there to a plaintiff who lost her grandmother and say decubitus ulcer. I need to say, listen, I'm sorry that the bed sores got worse. And so that's the things that we do. We're, we're constantly synthesizing. I'm going back to that visual, Lester, with our brains worrying, but we're constantly taking information and learning how to relate to humans with it. And, that, and that's what, you know, Rex probably wrote the book on that. And I'm, I'm, I'm through most of it, Rex. <laughs> if you got any more to teach me when we're done with COVID, I'm going to sit at your hand and learn some more. I'll, I'll buy breakfast this time. Uh, Greg, you're, you're way too kind, but I'll tell you, I love that song, A Man of Constant Sorrow. <laughs> I swear that's the guys in that room. <laughs> that's a great one. <laughs> I'll tell you one uh, one thing I I really appreciate about, appreciate about y'all as mediators and the job you do is, um, you know, I'm a sole practitioner. Uh, Lester actually has a big firm now in Cartersville, but I'm, I'm, I'm a sole practitioner. I have one paralegal. Nikki, who y'all probably know, she's been with me 20, 23 years. Um, but to have somebody like you when I'm mediating case, to, I feel like part of the burden's on your shoulders now, too. Like, it helps me carry the weight. It's very stressful, obviously. It's my client's one case. Hope it's the only case they ever have in their life. And I've, I've got to deliver justice. So sometimes it helps knowing Oh, thank God we got Rex. Thank God we got Greg. He's they're going to help me, you know, carry the football over the 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 end zone now. Um, and I can remember Rex a long. This has been a long time ago. Um, but you mediated a case where we were um, defendant was a car manufacturer in Japan, and we were about ready to settle it, but we had to wait until nine a.m. Japan time, and we were said Henning mediation that then, but we were at. We were working until one o'clock, two o'clock. I think I drove home at two o'clock in the morning, just, just exhausted, just, you know, but I felt better that you were helping me carry that load a little bit. And I can remember Greg and I, it, it, it wasn't the last mediation did for, did for me, but I can remember one mediation where we, we got a, got really close, but it wasn't enough. And, uh, and and we came back three months later, I needed to get, I, I got an architect and a building contractor to do plans for my client's home. It had to be remodeled because she was, she was uh, um, seriously, seriously injured and, and permanently injured. And she needed a bathroom remodeling and a bedroom remodeling. And um, 
I remember that. And you came back three months later and mediated a, a result. Uh, you know, we, we stopped the mediation. I, we worked for three more months, came back and you mediated that. And I felt the same kind of sense of calm. Somebody else has helped me carry this load. I mean, it's, it's not just me. And I appreciate that. I like that about mediation. Robin, if I can say one thing, and I'll keep the details quiet, but one of the things, one of the cases we mediated, the case had gone on for so long that your daughter and you got to know the family. And if you recall, you brought your daughter with you to mediation. I, you know, I, yeah, I remember daughter. that. And I think what she's now a 2L at right. Georgia. Yes. So, so she has no better role model in the world than you to look up to. Uh, some <laughs> homegrown you. mentorship. But one of the things that, that we feed off of is the energy that folks have for their clients. Now, occasionally, and, and Rex, you, you may have to do this too, there isn't that that synergy within the plaintiff and client, plaintiff's attorney and client, and we have to kind of fill that void and build the trust and become a bridge even within that one room. But you know, when I watch your passion for a client whose case you've held on for you know half a dozen years, and, and it's a family's worst nightmare, and I see the care that you have, I'm going to adopt that persona and, and care for your baby as I take it to the other room and show the other room, hey, this is a precious baby that needs caring for. Now, if you're wrong on the law, if the law isn't with you, you now I'll have to soft pedal how I tell you that, yeah. but I'm going to give you the, the comfort and compassion. And, and I think that's the biggest thing that, that, that Rex has in spades and, and the others who are that blue ribbon caliber have is that ability to have compassion and understanding. For me, I have a uh, kind of all-in personality. Like I like the newness of every new day, a different case, and I like learning about it. But but what you talk about, um, I think is, is our most important job. Having uh, a very high EQ, emotional intelligence is very big. Um, you know, I, I didn't book any classes at Carolina. I wasn't top of my class. I don't think you have to be top of your class, but I, I put my EQ up there with just about anybody. And I think Rex has that same thing. So I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you my uh, my my brief from the lawyer from the advocate's standpoint. I'm gonna tell you what my strategy is, uh, Rex, and then I want you to tell me if my strategy is good or if I'm if I'm just if I'm just full of it. If there's uh, yeah you know if it's if if it's a a bad strategy to have. Uh, one of the first things is if the, you know, I usually defer to the other side in picking a mediator, especially if they feel strongly about it, because I feel like they're picking somebody they'll listen to. Second thing is, uh, I, am not going to talk about, uh, the facts, uh, about the disputed facts when I go to a mediation and try my case in the mediation, because I sort of feel like that is, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't get you any closer. It just, it just focuses on what you differ about. Uh, the third thing is I'm happy to talk about what the law is, you know, because the law, you can look it up and if it's right or wrong. Uh, and, and then the, the, you know, in there though, what I'm essentially saying, because I have a lot of people, you know, that want to go to mediations, defense lawyers that come at me and they, you know, they want to say, well, nobody's going to believe your client because of what, what I say. I'm not, I'm only here to talk about money and the law. That's the only two things I'm here to talk about. Is that a good strategy or is that just something I've come up with that, that I think works, but that there's really a better way for me? Well, I would comment that the proof is in the pudding, uh, Lester, you're one of the most successful lawyers in the state of Georgia. 
um, not only in the courtroom, but in the in in uh, in your relationships with other lawyers. So there's no way I'm going to uh, criticize that. I particularly agree uh, w- with all three of your points that you that you made. That but pick allowing the other side to pick a mediator if they have a strong preference. That was my default when I was uh, litigating cases, for exactly the reason that you said because they are picking someone that they that they will listen to. Uh, and I, I do think that that's a good, very good start uh, as an, for an advocate in, in uh, going into a mediation. Uh, you, it is extraordinarily rare that you change any, on the second point, it's extraordinarily rare that you change anyone's point of view on disputed facts. Um, you know, you may address them as part of the outline of the case, but you're correct. If if they believe your client's a liar and they have things about about that, more likely than not, you're not going to change that opinion. Uh, I I do comment on this sometimes. I have had lots of cases where very talented uh, counsel have not let their clients speak uh, just because they don't want them to make a misstep. And then I mediate with them in the private caucuses, and they are extraordinarily, extraordinarily loving, kind-hearted people. If, if I have a client that is going to shine, I think I would prepare them like I would for trial. But a lot of times the representatives to the other side have never actually met them, maybe not even seen them on videotape, that that's something that I might do that might be a disputed fact. Uh, particularly if you have a very good client that can do that. Uh, Totally agree with you on the law. Uh, The law is somewhat objective. I mean, you can can look it up in black and white and see it. Uh, And if you've got a dispute about the law, I think that's an excellent thing to talk about because we can ferret that out during the course of the course of the day. So I don't have any criticisms. It's obviously been a very successful strategy for you. Uh, somebody else may have a different one, but I don't have any criticisms of that strategy at all. What do you, what do you think? I'm going to ask a, a two prong question to both of you. What 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 is it that makes a mediation work, and vice versa? What's the biggest stumbling block to making it work? What's what's the the problem? What's the biggest stumbling block that can make it fail? Greg, you want to handle that? Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm too Pollyanna-ish, but all I really need is is for both rooms to at least have given one iota of potential that it could resolve. And that's enough of a mouse hole for me to get my big butt through <laughs> to try and, and start getting into their ears and, and talking to them about the idea of resolution. Um, I think every case has the potential to settle and it's not naivete because there are always certain things you can do to talk to the sides. I think one of the hardest jobs we have is to hold a very accurate mirror up to a case and talk truth to folks that like both of you that we know personally and professionally have known for years and years. And, and you're both former state bar presidents. So I think you guys have forgotten more law than I know. So for me to hold up some, an accurate mirror, I'm holding it, but you know, don't ask me to speak because my voice might crack a little bit like Robin, you have some challenges. Um, But we've got to hold that accurate mirror and remind you that, you're not gonna be making that decision. It's gonna be 12 jurors or six jurors in federal court and that you don't know who they're gonna be and how they're gonna look at it. And and I I picked this tip up from Susan. Um, 
Susan Forsling, she said, you know, both sides have a pathway to the jury. They're going to get to hear both stories on certain issues. One won't be precluded by motion and limine. And people who hear that might fall in two different camps, whether they agree with the plaintiff or the defendants based on experience. And I remind folks of that so that they step back and realize they won't get to control it because, you know, the difference between plaintiff's attorneys and defense attorneys, uh, I didn't realize until I did plaintiff's work, but Robin, you'll go to visit a family two days after a wreck and you'll see the bandage person in a hospital. Lester, you'll be there at the wake dealing with a, a deceased person and you'll be at the scene where it's not later and you're trying to figure it out. Like there's still blood and debris at a scene and defense people get cases two years later. And so there's not the emotional investment necessarily the same way. And, and when you get to the mediation, you get to us, I have to sometimes root people to the fact that, hey, this person didn't wake up and ask for this. This happened to them. Let's show some humanity. Let's show some compassion. And, and I, I try and weed through the, the, the usual things you'll see. Well, I don't like their expert. Their expert's a, a this kind of person. We always see this person. Well, I don't like their expert. This expert has a, its own plane. I'm like, all right, let's, let's get through all that and let's get to the root of it. And once you get down to the root of it and that interpersonal one-on-one, I can usually build from there. All cases don't settle, as you know. Um, some cases need trial. Uh, I, 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 for one, I don't know how you feel, Rex. I wish the courts were open. I think mediation is more effective when the courts are open. Um, so while, while some people think this has been beneficial to mediation, I'm sure it has, but I wish the courts were open because I think it handcuffs attorneys who would otherwise go to court. And there's a leverage there that sometimes needs to shake both sides into reality that, hey, if we don't get it here, it's gonna be resolved by some strangers. Do you, do you wanna give it another shot? We'll order pizza. We'll stay here till, till late. I don't have anywhere to be till tomorrow let's stay here and really focus. I mean, you go through those motions. Mediation has highs and lows. You, you both know that as practicing people. Rex and I know that and see that. And what's funny is Rex and I might see each other around five o'clock on a mediation <laughs> day, passing the halls. I'll go, how's it going? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> how's it going, Greg? I'm not sure. I, I'll be the first to know, but I don't know now. And, and we don't know how it's going, but we never really give up. And that kind of professionalism and, and doggedness are things that I think separate folks like a Rex uh, from the rest of the pack. We just, we never give up. We're, we're, we're indefatigable in that regard. And I think people get energy from seeing that. Robin, I appreciate you saying that, which you said, but that seems normal to me to stick with a case and follow it up until it's done. Early on in my career, someone told me, a, a mediator told me, I think it was Joe Murphy, that he takes them all personally. And I said, come on, dude, you, you get it for a day. You don't have to live with it and you're on to the next one. He said, no, I, I keep up with him. I want to know. And, and when you see that practice day in and day out, I think that that um, leaks off onto the professionals who come to see us. I think when, when Lester sees my passion for it and you see my passion for it and others see Rex's passion for it, you realize, you know, I can trust you with my baby. And now I might listen to what you have to say. Um, but, but it's a process. And, and it's hard, especially with folks who've had who have had proven excellence, you know, what, what can this, you know, young whippersnapper double heel tell you, Lester, that you haven't already seen 10 times, Robin, what can I tell you that you haven't seen or done, you know, a hundred times. Um, but, but, but it works. It usually works at least. That so, we so I want to follow up on something and, and also, uh, you know, with your background as having been a, been a claims professional. Yeah. Uh, at one time in your career, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, ordinarily, you know, just for, for our audience that may not, uh, 
you know, may not uh, be of the legal profession, you know, ordinarily in civil suits, there's some kind of insurance involved. Uh, and that insurance uh, claim, you know, how much is paid on that is typically regulated by uh, a claims professional or sometimes a committee of claims professionals or sometimes, uh, you know, on up into the boardroom, you know, or whatever, depending on the size of the claim. And so uh, it also, Greg, as you know, this is a different kind, a totally different type of negotiation from negotiating a real estate deal because the parties don't really have the ability to walk away. Right. You know, they have the ability to, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, Karnak on the Johnny Carson show. For those of us who are old enough to remember that, you're going to open the envelope and find out the answer, you know, when the jury comes back at some point about who, who was right, you know, and who was wrong. Uh, and with the, the advent of COVID, we've had uh, no jury trials in the state for you know months now. Uh, now they're talking about, which I, I personally think is a horrible idea for justice, putting just criminal cases first, uh, you know, before they start trying civil cases. And and certainly for people in custody, awaiting trial, that's one thing. But for people who are out on bond, I, I think justice in the civil arena is just as important. Uh, as that, but there's no, there's no courthouse steps to walk up now where we're going to get that answer. And uh, Greg, you and I've talked before, you know, that there's some insurance companies, I won't name names, but there's some insurance companies that send somebody to a mediation and they've got X dollars and that's the most they have. And there's not anything that's going to be said or done, or that you're going to be able to say or, or do, despite the fact that you're, you know, top mediator, uh, fabulous at what you do. Uh, that's going to change what that top what that top number is there. So, can you tell us? You know, with I, I'm sensing just in my cases with the advent of COVID that the stock market's rolling along. You know, insurance companies are making money in it. They're not any jury trials going to force them to pay out. And uh, and so I, I've I've sort of seen the lull come, which didn't come in the first six or so months. So what are your thoughts on those things? You know, is there, uh, are there insurance companies out there looking for the COVID discount uh, right now? How prevalent is that? Uh, how has it been different uh, mediating cases in the age of COVID? Um, first of all, I think, I'd like to think that no one has been trying to use a COVID discount. What, what, what usually happens is uh, I think if the parties get close the specter of trial in the next quarter or the next month or, you know, two weeks out um, because that's not there. It takes a little bit of pressure of pressure off of the defense and all things being equal. Some may decide to hold out a little bit longer, but for the most part, Lester, I've still seen cases settle that should settle. The ones that haven't settled will probably never um, destined to settle. Those, those are the ones I know we mentioned maybe talking about, court-ordered versus voluntary mediation. Some of those where they're just checking the box, they come in and just check the box. And, and there's a vibe that tells me no one's ever given this a scintilla's worth of a chance of getting done. Um, there are certain folks who I think do come to mediation, maybe different carriers who have sort of an across the board business decision that you know we're gonna fight and we're not gonna go above a certain threshold. I try not to do those kinds of cases if I can, because I always wanna fight a, a fighter's chance. I don't need, I can take a, a small, you know, a small opening, but I need a chance that it can be done, not a hard stop where I'm, I'm hitting a ceiling and the best I can do is get you an early impasse and not waste your day. 
those aren't the cases that Rex is cut out for. Those aren't the cases I want to be cut out for. And so I've, I try to keep those off my plate as much as I can. Um, you know, COVID, we keep saying new normal. You know, we're all Zoom veterans now. I think Rex and I have gotten new computers to do this stuff. Robin's got a microphone uh, that we're using now. Uh, I wish we can get back to where, where the courts are open, like I alluded to earlier, so that it removes all doubt. Because I, I know from talking to other plaintiffs like yourself, Lester, that there is a belief that that's out there. I don't have hard evidence of it. I don't have necessarily anecdotal evidence of it. Um, but there, there are some cases where I do think every once in a while I'll come across one that this probably would have settled without a pandemic going on because the parties would have to deal with this other issue. Um, but for the most part, the ones that table, we do get them back. Um, Robin, your story isn't fortunately a unique one. There are other cases where I just have like a running total. Rex showed me how he keeps up with them on his sheet of paper and I'll get emails every, every couple of weeks. Like, have you heard anything? Do you mind reaching out to the other side? Hey, I've had a change. Can we talk? And, and we're still getting them done. So I would say there's more delays as opposed to complete impasses, Lester. Uh, they just take a little bit longer. And, and the folks need to walk away and, and let things resonate. That, that's a factor we don't talk about much, but there's a process to mediation. The reason it works is there's process and time for the parties to digest what you see and feel and learn at mediation. And that's still the same right now. One of the um, things, like in the case we were talking about that you mediated for me and three months later, it resolved after mediation, three months after mediation, uh, I had resigned that we were going to try that case. Um, it was already in suit. We're very far along. And now I'm going to name these guys my architect and my building contract. We're, they're going to be my experts now. You know, we're I'm just we're OK. We're ready. Let's go. Uh, and then you call me. <laughs> really out of the blue and, and kind of are you sitting down conversation um, on a Friday afternoon? I remember that. And just like, God, how did that happen? It's settled. And um, that's what amazes me. And like the last one Rex did for me, uh, kind of the same thing. We were literally millions apart. And by the end of the day, Rex is like, I think, I think this is what it's going to resolve for. I mean, he named the figure and I'm like, wow, <laughs> I was sh amazed, shocked. I shouldn't be shocked, but uh, he had nailed it and it did resolve right when I'm at that point of, okay, wrap it up, let's go. And it resolves for, you know, so that process and it's, it's something, I don't know that you can actually define it uh, or write it down, but something about the process makes that happen. What, what are your thoughts about that, Rex? Whoa. Um, <clears throat> Robin, I think that you're absolutely right. There is something about the process that makes it happen. I think the number one thing um, that helps mediation be successful is focus. All of a sudden, you have everybody, uh, particularly when we were all together before COVID, we're all in the same building. We're often in the same room. Uh, particularly when you're away from your office, you don't have the phones ringing or other people coming in. Uh, so you have everybody focused on the same problem at the same time. Uh, Alexander Hamilton said that it was a miracle that we got all the delegates together to write the constitution. Don't expect a second miracle. Uh, I think that's sort of true for mediation. It's a miracle in 2021. If you can get everybody on the same place at the same time, working on the same problem. Uh, so you've got everybody's attention. I think that is a big piece of it. The, the other thing is 
<clears throat> sometimes uh, it is so much better for a neutral to deliver the message than the advocate. It's just received better. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone give me what I thought was an excellent idea. And I've said, I tell you what I want to do with your permission. I want it to come from me. I think if I take your idea, they're instantly going to be objecting to it where they're hearing it from a neutral as if it's my idea. So I do uh, candidly with permission, steal ideas sometimes. So I think that neutral being the diplomat between the parties and a diplomat's not a namby-pamby. A diplomat is someone who can deliver hard information in such a way that it doesn't alienate people. So I think the focus is a, a huge factor in success and carrying it another step, because I know one of your questions was what makes mediation successful. I, I think the number one thing that makes them successful is preparation. Preparing yourself, preparing your client, preparing your adversary, having that having that grown up conversation with your adversary a month ahead of time about the case. Uh, and you and Lester are <clears throat> the poster childs for that type of thing. Y'all have the gravitas and experience and you have the relationships to have those conversations. And then finally preparing the mediator. Um, I, I am an enormous advocate for the more that I know, the more likely I can be of help. So I think preparing the mediator uh, you know, if you have a case that's like Lester was talking about, talking about the law, if you have a case that turns on the Jones case, you don't need to be asking me at noon, Rex, you read the Jones case. And I go, yeah, about 10 years ago. <laughs> right. I need to read it. I need to read it last night. Uh, but preparation and focus, I think, are the two things that lead to successful mediations. So one Greg, of, I, uh, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say one of the uh, things that the one of the last things I do after I've prepared my my opposing counsel as best I can, and maybe a week or two before mediation, I'll say, "Is there anything else I can get you? Yeah. Is there anything else you need? Anything else you want?" And and I, you know, and if they say no, then I'm like, okay, then it, then I've done everything I can. It's up up to our mediator now. <laughs> That, that is an excellent question. Make sure that the other side has what they need. Um, I think that's an excellent question and so, an excellent practice pointer for people that are new to the process. So, so one of the, well, I, I want to go a, a, a level deeper in that uh, with you, Rex, you know, for a minute. And, uh, you, you know, uh, th th there's a joke I sort of have with my friends about mediation because as lawyers know you know you go to a mediation it's an all-day thing they bring in lunch because you don't want folks going out to lunch and changing their mind and getting away getting their minds on other things and um, but you know sometimes I have insurance companies and they bring me down there and you know we pay the mediator and and uh, the mediation fees because your time's valuable and you've got uh, you know, it's everything else. My time's valuable. And at the end of the day, I feel like I bought a $5,000 barbecue sandwich, you know, yeah. because uh, that's, you know, I got a nice lunch out of it, but other than that, there wasn't. And Robin has talked, I think, uh, very articulately and instructively about, uh, you know, pr pr talking to your opposing counsel and whatnot. 
But, you know, as many defense lawyers have told me over the years, you know, it ain't, I'm not putting my name on the check. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't write the checks. Uh, what can a lawyer do, uh, particularly a plaintiff's lawyer, to prepare the other side's client for that mediation to make sure we don't get the $5,000 barbecue sandwich? Excellent question, Lester. The um, uh, number one, I think, getting the information to the other side as early as possible and in a format that very busy corporate people will take the time to look at. Uh, I had a uh, eight-figure case that we settled that the plaintiff's attorney put together a 20-minute video uh, that laid out the case. Basically, uh, what he did was to try to be a uh, to have a video that could sit in the claims committee, and they could at least hear it from his point of view. Uh, my theory is, if it's more than 20 minutes, they won't look at it. Uh, you've got to give them. Uh, the the uh, brief version, but one to answer the question specifically, getting them as much information in a manner that they will accept and digest as early as possible. Uh, I, I used to represent a number of Fortune 500 companies uh, in their in their litigation, and I used to tell folks if I didn't have it 45 days ahead of time, it didn't happen. It, it took the corporate people that long. The, the serious claims committee folks, the folks that are looking at those seven and eight figure cases, nine figure cases, they have to have that information and plenty of time. So early information in a digestible format, uh, like I have somebody that's, uh, I'm getting ready for one uh, here and someone sent me 166 pages uh, on something. If you send 166 pages to a claims committee, they're not going to read it. They're not going to read it. If you said 166 pages, you deserve the $5,000 barbecue sandwich. <laughs> that's my, that's my theory. <laughs> but, but I, I think y'all are on to something, but get it to them as quickly, as early as you can in a format that they will look at. Lester, can I, can I add to that a little bit, go a little deeper? Absolutely. Having been an adjuster, I think the adjuster or the in-house counsel, whatever that client is with the defense attorney, I think that's one of the most important parts of this. Um, I always liken their role to the, the cop from Die Hard who, whose car gets shot up and he's the one talking to Bruce Willis, but he knows the most about it. Your adjusters are your frontline folks. They've been with the case almost as long as the plaintiff's attorney. And the defense attorneys respect their claims adjusters. And, and there are some plaintiff's attorneys who don't. And so when my, in that opening, when I get everyone there, I, I make sure to focus and highlight the adjuster and let them know I've been an adjuster to show the respect and also model the respect that I hope the plaintiffs have for them. The best in our profession treat the adjusters like they treat the defense attorneys, like they treat their, their own moms with a certain level of respect and professionalism. And building on what Rex said, you know, you can't book Rex within 45 days. Rex, Rex, Rex's next available mediation is like 45 days out. So knowing that when you book it, send your brief to the adjuster and get it to them. And I'll tell you, when, when you come in with your seven figure and eight figure cases, Robin and Lester, and the other side doesn't look wide eyed and you're going through your presentation, it's because you got it to them in time. They got it up the levels. They got permission down. They got other questions answered where they probably called you two weeks out and said, hey, that one bill, we got everything else, but that one bill, do you have the updated things? That was just an EOB charge. And you get that to them. They come ready. They also don't come embarrassed. What you don't see 
um, in the defense room when, when you dump 167 pages at the mediation of new information or new medical bills is the egg on face frustration and anger from the defense because now they're going to get in trouble with their bosses because they got new information that by all accounts they should have gotten before. Like, like I don't think plaintiff's attorneys intentionally do that, uh, but they certainly don't realize the ramifications of what it's like in the defense room when that happens. And while you might complain about a $5,000 launch on your side, Lester, they're, they're thinking about a colossal $5,000 in waste of time on their part. And they're going to get their butts chewed by bosses and claims committees who think, why did you even go to mediation if you didn't have this? Like, I didn't know it was out there. So I try and show that when I'm with people, how important the claims person is. Uh, and and I, I call it the Jerry Maguire, help me help you. <laughs> help help them help you by giving them what they need. And, and you know, you two are, are not the problem with that. There's some who are. Uh, but the best among you always come in and, and there are no secrets. It's just a matter of kind of doing, doing the dance a little bit and seeing where we are, but all the information's there. Yeah, I've had, uh, you know, I, 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 I'll say I've had, uh, I, I don't do opening statements unless I just get forced into doing it because I, I feel like you're, I'm not going to say anything new, uh, uh, you know, about the case. I've tried to send it, send it ahead of time. And I think the, you know, I had one, one time with a young lady who was in a wheelchair and uh, the jester on the other side forced us to do the opening statements because she wanted, she wanted to, uh, uh, her lawyer to tell us how proud they were of their case and, and, and how excellent they thought it was. And, uh, when we got through, uh, I, I just turned to my client and I told her I was going to do this ahead of time. And I said, T tell them how it feels to be where you are right now. And, uh, when she got through, there wasn't like a dry eye in the house and there was no way I could convey that, uh, convey that, you know, ahead of time. But uh, it, it, it seems to me that opening statements for the reasons you're talking about, Greg, in a mediation have become just of almost less value than anything, anything else, because the other side, a lot of times they're just sort of embarrassed about it, you know, if it's something they didn't know about the case. Whereas you can, if you tell them after you've split up, you know, they have time to sort of uh, regroup and, and, and maybe make a phone call or at least do something about it. No, I, I, let me clarify what I mean by that just a little bit. I do think the, the opening is important for, for this reason. You probably never get to deal with the adjuster directly and certainly not in person. And, and it is an opportunity to let them see what they'd be up against, you know, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to give you a big head like me, Lester, with this big old noggin I have, but you know, you have a certain dynamic style that they need to see and appreciate. And sometimes the defense attorney wants that so they can show their client we're going up against someone who's going to be very effective in a courtroom. You need to see this. You need to see how this person comes across. I've deposed her and my report doesn't show you that this person presents very sympathetically. Uh, as mediators, I, I, I attack, not attack, but I talk to the parties on all fronts, both rooms, but I'm letting them know, listen, you have a very sympathetic client, but I am pulling all the teeth I can and I've gotten three words out of them. They have a stony expression and that's not going to really translate well in front of a courtroom. You need to understand that. Conversely, I may tell the defense person that lady, as soon as she gets rolled in or walks in or uses her cane to walk in since this wreck, she's going to win the hearts and minds of every juror on there. And they won't even listen to your arguments. You need to understand that. So I, I think the opening is a good way. You don't have to use all your powder. You don't have to lay out all the facts of your case. 
but where you have good clients and you prepared them, let them see both you and them. Cause you know, you guys have been doing this so long. Um, you probably know every defense attorney you're up against, but you don't always know the adjusters. And there is a, a certain chance to shine and just show them a little bit about what's coming. Uh, and, and it also gives you a shot to see if they've done anything new that you haven't seen. I, I always liken it to get to look over the fence at Nick Saban's um, practice. <laughs> you know, you might not be able to stop it since they're all Americans, but at least you get to know what you're up against. Is and, there anything you've seen a lawyer do in a mediation that you found was just particularly effective? Particularly effective? Uh, yeah, all the time we see certain things that surprise me, certain twists of, of words, certain um, angles of looking at it. But, but largely, it is sort of the matter-of-fact way of how I'll beat you, where you just line your pieces up and say, we've gotten the law on this, we've gotten an expert on this, we've gotten the medicine on this, and we feel you guys are shorting us a little bit. Again, not giving away the farm in the opening necessarily, but showing them why you believe so impassionately. I mean, think of all the cases you have, Robin and Lester, and how few of them go to trial and how few of them go to mediation. They don't always go because sometimes you get a case that has warts. You know, you, you settle a case for one client and they bring you one with warts, you're still going to work on it. But that case never sees the light of day in mediation or trial. Um, when you have ones that merit using recs and, and, and are potential seven or eight figure cases, um, there's some substance to it. And sometimes you need to help be your best advocate beyond just my words or Rex's words or Susan and Joe and David's words. You need to show them what's coming down the pipe so they can see it or let an adjuster be intimidated by your great oratory or presentation style or even a thoughtful presentation. Uh, not every case merits that. And, and there are some cases where I understand, and Lester, we've talked about this, where, where you have all the facts and, and even a blind person can see you ought to just fork over the intender the limits. I understand in that case where you, where you don't have the energy to do it, but other times um, I think it's a miss when people don't don't invest just a little bit of time in that because there's so much that can happen that's good. If nothing else, it allows us to go back and say, do you want him with his, his little drawl up in a Cartersville County courthouse talking to him? I mean, that's like putting Br'er Rabbit in a briar patch and that's what you are gonna be facing in, in your client with, with their accent and, and their lack of, you know, uh, your attorney and your client aren't going to present as well. So uh, sometimes you need to show them, Lester. And, and I think it's important that people consider that, even if it's frustrating, even if you're tired, even if you're thinking, I've been doing this 30 some odd years, 40 years, can't believe I have to show them, but here goes and just show them. I think that's what the openings are for. You know, um, same question to you, Rex, about have you same sort of question. Have you seen anything that's particularly effective that a lawyer should do? But going back, and I, I think it was the case you mediated, Greg. Um, if I have a, a client who's uh, permanently permanently disabled by a wreck or whatever the situation is, you know, I go to that client's house and see what what kind of living condition do they have. Um, it's not just having to use a wheelchair or a walker or whatever, but in this case that Greg mediated, I think it was you, Greg, and settled. Um, I went to my client's house uh, it, several times. They lived up in Canton, and I, I visited them very often. But before mediation, I wanted to go see how they're doing. And mediation was probably close to two years after the wreck. And uh, in their house, she still has a hospital bed in the middle of their living room. 
she sleeps on a hospital bed two years later because uh, she can't even get into her own bed. And you don't, you know, until you're there and see what that's like. Uh, so I video that. Uh, anytime I have something, I video that. And I show that at mediation because an old friend, mutual friend of ours, Tom McGill, told me once that don't assume that the adjuster has watched what you sent and make them watch it again during mediation. So if I have a particularly good video, I'm, I'm going to play it and make them sit, sit through it. Um, and, and, you know, I had a, a I had a suicide, prison suicide case where we had the, the event, the hanging on video on body cam. And I, I made them sit there and watch that whole thing. And they said, Oh no, we've seen it. We've seen it. Oh, good. Okay. We're going to watch it one more time. What, what are your thoughts about that, Rex? You know, I, I, the, number one, the premise is, have I seen uh, things that are effective yes. in mediation? Obviously, Robin, those things that you just enumerated are effective. Um, I think I see something effective almost every day. <laughs> the, um, the quality of the bar on both sides is just astonishing. But if I had to boil one thing down that I think is, uh, is, is the social lubricant that leads to to um, resolutions, it's courtesy that that particularly if the defendants are showing courtesy to your lady who's in that wheelchair, uh, showing empathy uh, to them and listening, uh, just those things that we were taught when we were little kids to listen, uh, to be care about others. Uh, if it, that is kind of a simplistic answer, but um, uh, I have seen people use PowerPoints very effectively, videos very, very effectively. But if I was going to bold, if I was talking to a young lawyer who was going into their first mediations, it's uh, bullying and threatening virtually never works. Now you just, you're not going to threaten Lester Tate and make him back down. That's not going to happen. And for that matter, we're not going to back down a senior claims representative that flew down from New York. Th th those things don't work, but listening to them, being respectful to them and showing courtesy to them on both sides, I think are probably the things that I think are extraordinarily effective. In addition to the things that you just listed, Robin, um, I'll never forget one where I saw a lady uh, on a video uh, strangled to death uh, in, a, uh, in a nursing home and the nursing home people lied about it. And that video just was absolutely 100% devastating. So there's so imagine. Many, oh, it you was, say, you say, okay, if you, if you don't settle, a jury's going to watch this. Gonna watch this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of things. Uh, I remember uh, one time where uh, I'm going to try to shorten this story up, but the plaintiff testified about how bad he was hurt and how he'd never had any trouble with his back, never had any trouble with his law. And the defense attorney said, I'm just going to show you what we have. Opened up that PowerPoint and he had had all kinds of problems with his back and he had had those problems in prison. And he was, <laughs> I mean, it was just the most awful thing you've ever seen. And the plaintiff's attorney, the defense went out and the plaintiff's attorney leaned over to his client and he said, John, we're going to have to take anything they offer us. Today. 
you're you're giving me PTSD because I think all pla- <laughs> all plaintiffs attorneys have been there with that right. kind of case and that kind of client right. before. And you're like, oh my god, oh boy, yeah, they told you the truth, right? Yeah, that's right. that's right. rough. That's rough. Robin, uh, if, I can, if I can say mm-hmm. one thing, sure. Um, I, I think Rex is 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 understating sometimes the work we do in the defense room when they do have a gotcha moment, and and if you have an attorney who's been bombastic and difficult at every step with sort of a scorched earth, scorched earth approach. And then the defense has the smoking gun. They're, they're sometimes hesitant to do it. They're like, no, we're gonna show them at trial. <laughs> and one of the biggest leaps of faith I have to ask defense people is to please let me have that. And I, I can't speak to what happened before today, but that is a fellow professional in the other room and they would appreciate this. And what I, the bargain I kind of make with the defense with the defense adjuster is to say, let me pull plaintiff's counsel out and at least show them. If they ignore it and they continue on as they are, have Adam at trial, blow them out of the water, do what you have to do. But if if you if my sense of this is right, they're going to appreciate this. It'll likely lead to this getting done, and and they'll thank you and and, and maybe you know mend this this sort of fractured relationship. And uh, it's hard sometimes if someone's been browbeaten and and kind of put down the whole time. Uh, but but we get that information and get to share it with you. And then of course it's, it, it stinks for you. It's not great to find that out, but at least you reveal, you get to feel relief going, wow, I'm glad I didn't invest another $50,000 in two years of my time going forward because my client's been lying to me and this is toast. And the only other thing I wanted to add to, you know, you talked about the importance of showing the, the crucial video or the day in the life of the client. A lot of times as, a, as an attorney, I don't talk in the defense room about pain thresholds that are seven out of 10, nine out of 10. Those mean nothing to me. And I know they don't mean much to a defense attorney other than scientifically trying to come up with a value. What I'll try and elicit from the plaintiff, and I don't want to put them on their bad day, but I'll say, are you right-handed? I know your right hand was hurt. How do you brush your hair? How do you groom yourself? How do you toilet yourself? How do you bathe? How do you dress? And I get down into the, the most seemingly innocuous details of a day and kind of verbally and visually, but, but imagine taking them through the day that you videotape. And when you go into the other room and go, you know, for me, it doesn't matter. I have no hair, but when you talk about a, you know, 40 year old woman who now can't do her own hair or, or someone who has to rely on a new spouse, you know, they just got married and a tragic accident happened. And while they, they said for better or for worse, they didn't expect it in, in, in month seven. And this person has to be toileted. You know, I, I love my wife. I don't toilet her. Um, and, and there are things like that where you just let the defense know, hey, would you want to do this? Would you want to go home? Because mediators can say that we can violate the golden rule. We can say, put yourself in their shoes. You can't. <laughs> you, you, and, you and Lester can't, Robin. But, but Rex and I can say that all day. And, and I think that helps humanize situations where we get too focused in the medicine of it. And, and I remind people, this person has a name. This isn't patient 1136. This is Mrs. Thompson, who, when she left for work that day, was trying to go live her life. And, and this is what, you know, this is the proximate cause that ruined that for her. Do either of you have any personal conviction or a religious or a spiritual tenet that informs the way you mediate? Rex, you want to uh, start with yeah. that? Yes, I do. Uh, it's Matthew seven twelve. It's the golden rule. Um, I try to talk to people like I'd want to be talked to if the roles were reversed. Um, I, 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 I think that that's a big part of 
what I want to try to do in a mediation is sort of expanding on what Greg's talking about. Um, but yes, absolutely. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That, that was, that has always been the way I practice law. And I'll tell you back in the, the, the dark ages when I was actually a defense attorney, when I first started out, and this is 30 years ago, um, right, out of, right out of kindergarten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I worked for a, um, a lawyer, a great guy, Steve Cotter at Swift Curry. And sure, uh, I've gotten that, Robin. That's and, right. Yeah, a long, long time ago. But he said, we're going to practice law by the golden rule. And it has worked um, for I'm, me, for sure. I, I shouldn't say Psalm 1837. You know, I pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn again until they were consumed. Uh, I, th I think the golden rule is a much, uh, a much better one, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you need that one too, though, Lester. <laughs> Greg, how about you? Any kind of personal conviction or spiritual or religious tenet that you know, informs you know the way you handle things? I do. I, I have a friend that um, served on the general alumni um, council with me, and she passed out these bracelets that said, be compassionate. Um, mm -hmm. And um, they come as a pair. You're supposed to if you recognize a compassion act in someone else, you give them a bracelet, you give them a pair and they wear one and give one out. And I wore one for a long time and it broke. So I've got to get another one. But um, I think being, being a minority person growing up and, and having a different perception of things, never being in the majority or things like that, you, you learn to see things sometimes from the outside looking in. And I've always had an ability to, I don't always act on it, but I've had the ability if I stop and focus and think to imagine things from someone else's perspective, not driving down the connector when someone cuts me off. I'm not compassionate then, not tonight during the Duke game. I'm not going to be compassionate then. You will have no mercy for the Dukies tonight. <laughs> I will, I will sure. be like Lester, take my enemies. <laughs> and um, but but, but it, it's, it's, it's part golden rule. It's part be kind and be compassionate. But when you get in there and you listen and you focus, you know, the, the process of mediation is we're not. Not only are we all there, but our phones are off and down. I'll take some notes, but a lot of times I'm doing this or, or I'm focusing or I'm holding eye contact. Um, I will turn my body towards the plaintiff. I will talk through the, Robin, you know this. I rarely sit near you. I sit across from your, your clients and I talk to your clients and, and you give me the space to do that. And you know what I'm doing, but I'm showing them respect and everything like that. So it builds on what Rex says, but if we're all a little bit more compassionate with each other and then compassionate with our other professionals, that, that, that doesn't always happen. And, and I see mediations blow up because of that, the lack of compassion and the lack of civility. Um, but I think if you all can step back and see things from someone else's perspective, and that's, you know, you guys don't have a set client. Uh, Robin, I think we, I've worked with you on old, young, rich, poor, white, black. Um, as plaintiff's attorneys, you guys are advocates and, and you, kind of champion for the little guy um, when you come to trial. Defense people don't always get to pick their clients. So sometimes they're like, I don't want this jerk, you know, this bad driver who was drunk and went over the other side of the road. I'm not thrilled this is my guy, but I kind of owe him the same duties and professionalism that a public defender may. Um, and so when, when you understand where everyone's coming from and why they're doing it, it's easier to talk to them in, in a way that they can hear you. Uh, like Rex said, sometimes uh, I'm so, you know, the Carolina way, I want to point to who gave the credit. So I always want to give someone the credit like, hey, I didn't come up with this. Lester came up with this. This is Robin's idea I'm bringing to you. But there are times where I have to look at my little audible sheet and go, this person can't stand plaintiff's counsel. It has to come from me. And I'll, I'll seek permission, like Rex said, or acknowledge it later. 
Um, but, you know, we're doing a lot of different things, but trying to put ourselves in the shoes of that plaintiff and, and address them in a way that gives them dignity, empowers them to make some decisions and, and leads to resolution. So Greg, uh, I'm, I'm going to really put you on the spot. You know, Rob and I are both bourbon aficionados. So, you know, we celebrate trial wins. I, I, I celebrate the rare occasion of a George Tech yellow jacket victory uh, with a little, little glass of bourbon. Uh, so uh, how do you celebrate, how do you celebrate uh, a North Carolina victory over Duke? How do you celebrate a win in a mediation uh, and which is sweeter? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Put him on the spot there, Lester. <laughs> there are a few things sweeter than beating beating Duke or watching Duke lose. Um, you know, <laughs> Joe Murphy used to say this. He said there, there are fewer people making a full-time living in Georgia as full-time mediators than there are professional baseball players. And I think that's true. And, and at the level that, that I, I, I'm hoping to ascend to, which is Rex's level, um, there are very few people I can talk to about it. I never talk about cases with anyone because that's – you know, I'm like a vault, um, but I can talk with Rex, Susan, Joe, Todd, Gino, Rusty, all the way down the line, all the folks we have about certain wins and victories that no one else will really appreciate. You know, only Rex will appreciate how I diffuse this one thing, found the perfect euphemism or metaphor, and that vehicle worked, and that turned the tide at 7 p.m. on a really contentious mediation. So it's, it's a little bit lonely in that regard. I think of the, um, did you ever see the right stuff? You know, that, that one pilot's bar where Chuck Yeager used to hang out in the early movie that it ended up burning down in the movie. But there's such a small circle of folks, fraternity or sorority, a group of us that can appreciate what we do. Uh, sometimes, the, um, sometimes the celebrations for those are a, a, a bump on the arm or I call my mama. I call my mom and dad and go, I sold a big one today. I can't go into the details of it, but you'd be proud of me. And because I draw on everything from my life. I might use something I learned in kindergarten something I picked up from Rex in passing. Um, I know Robin is a maker's person. I think you're an angel's envy person, Lester. As for well, Bergen, what's that? I'm, I'm really a maker's person too. That, okay. that, my new favorite is Wyoming bourbon. If, Wyoming you, haven't bourbon? Tried, if you hadn't tried that, it's, it's pretty, pretty sweet. Well, I'll tell you, COVID has given me something new to find out. Uh, a friend of mine had given me a bottle of Pappy. And when that finished, I said, well, I'll just go get some more. And one, I learned what the price of it was, and I knew now learned how hard it was to get. And if you know anything about me, if you tell me it's hard to get, then that just makes me more focused. So I've, I've developed quite a collection, and I, I share more than I drink. Uh, but tonight, if we win, I might, uh, I might have some Eagle Rare. But that's my flavor of the week right now. And that's a good one. Uh, I found it a few places, and, and it's one that, that goes down pretty easy. Um, that's it. I, 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 I drank, uh, I drank, I opened my bottle of Eagle, Eagle rare on January the 20th of this year. So, uh, huh. <laughs> I imagine, I wonder why, I wonder why. Rex, how about you? How do you, how do you celebrate? You know, Robin, the, um, uh, mainly I, I celebrate by having dinner with Mary, <laughs> but the that's, that that's lovely. It is lovely. It's uh, one of my, it's definitely the high point of every day, but um, the, one of the things I do enjoy sometimes is, uh, and it doesn't happen every day, but you have one that you get settled and both sides are just delighted, you know, uh, the pressure's off and uh, it, it's turned out well for both sides. I enjoy that camaraderie of talking to people before we leave 
uh, and, and not, you know, there's so much we miss from COVID, even little things, but celebrating and just sharing and uh, with everybody at the end. But the main thing is dinner with Mary. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, we're at the point where we ask every guest our favorite question. Um, Greg, I'm going to start with you, okay? All right. What, what is your definition of justice? My definition is probably different from yours, uh, and, it's, and it's something I bring up often in mediation because uh, the parties will say, I just want justice. I just want what's fair. And I'll remind them that a jury is made up of humans who don't always get it right, and they will never appreciate what you know and appreciate and have experienced. They'll never have on that jury an advocate like you have at your right side who's, who's representing you now in that the best I can do is, is let them know the entirety of possibilities and let them choose the ones that they feel match their risk aversion. I know that's a technical answer, but, um, you know, and I don't say this in a base, in a, in a humanless way or with, without tact, but in, in a horrific case, you know, nothing the jury does is going to bring someone back. So I talked to them about, does it bother you to have to live this day over and over again and, and have to do that for another two years and then live with the potential disappointment that someone doesn't value it like you value because what you lost is priceless. Um, now it's easier to have that conversation if there is a reasonable settlement on the table. Um, other times I'll say, listen, I won't stand in your way. What they've offered is such a pittance and doesn't represent any remorse, doesn't represent any uh, relationship to the law you might get better relief going forward and fighting it. Um, but, but justice is always a movable target. And it's something that I, I don't speak about until I've spent a lot of time with that plaintiff. And I feel I can understand what it's like to be in their shoes from talking to them, more importantly, listening to them. This big head of mine has big old ears and I hear and pick up everything and I watch everything. Sometimes Robin, um, attorneys like you and, and Lester who do not fear going into a courtroom um, and not saying you two do this because you two are very compassionate with your own clients, but you're so focused on charging that you don't watch that your client twitches every time you say the word trial and that they don't have the, the resolve or the stomach to go forward with you. And sometimes I have to pull attorneys out and go, hey, Mrs. Jones will not be there for you like you think. She, she doesn't want to be here or this is too taxing on her or this is too much of a burden or she just wants closure. She doesn't need this money. And, and that's not where the fight is. She, she could use this money to build a legacy, but she doesn't have this fight in her. So your notion of getting her justice at trial isn't what she needs. That's my read on it. And sometimes that helps do it. Other times it might be, you know what? You don't need the money. It's a pittance that they're offering anyway. Go show them. <laughs> and, 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 and you just kind of read that way. But I try not to usher anyone to trial without first exhausting every possible opportunity. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a nuanced question. It's not an easy yes, no. <laughs> That's why we ask it. <laughs> Rex, how about you? What is your notion of justice or how would you define it? Uh, well, I think it's almost as elusive as um, the pursuit of happiness from the Declaration of Independence. The, uh, but for me, justice comes back to the golden rule back to Matthew 7, 12, that you individually are doing to others as you would have them do unto you. And that collectively, that the, that the jury 
is treating this particular person, whether it be the plaintiff or the defendant, as they would want to be treated if they were in that same situation. Um, but that is an extraordinarily hard thing to define. Uh, I, I, I looked on, I think there's 300 different references to justice in the Bible. And one that really uh, I thought was very interesting goes all the way back to Exodus. And it's in Exodus 23. And it talks about not following the crowd, playing to the crowd and, uh, and, and being and showing favoritism to the poor man. And then two paragraphs late, or two verses later, it says, uh, don't deny justice to the poor. Um, but coming back to the golden rule, collectively as a society, uh, whether it's immigration reform, you know, whether it's uh, laws that we pass in the Georgia legislature, but to do what is right, it's righteous. That that's a pretty good way to put it, Rex. I don't know that I could put it any like it. any other yep. way better. One day, Lester and I are both going to say what we think about justice, what, how we define it. We haven't gotten there yet. I'm 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 gathering everybody else's definitions, and I'm going to put one together myself. But I think about it a lot. Obviously, I want I want to make sure that y'all let me know. I, I will, <laughs> please please let me know when y'all define it because I want to hear it. <laughs> well, I don't know what the definition is, but I do feel like having uh, talked to you two today uh, for for a, a pretty long period of time compared to some of our podcasts because it was just so great, such great dialogue. I, I, I feel like I am uh, better informed to seek that answer. Well, y'all y'all are very kind to invite us. It's an absolute joy and pleasure to be with Greg and to be with y'all. And thank you very much. I, I echo Rex's sentiment. You know, we haven't gotten to see each other in person because of COVID yeah. since March. So this is one of the few times I get to see my friend who I'm used to seeing every day uh, and, and spending time with and sharing time. So I hope everyone gets vaccinated and we get that herd immunity so I can go uh, shake this fellow's hand again and, and pick up some more wisdom. I got a notebook fresh, fresh with blank lines for you to fill up, Rex. I learn more from you than you do from me, my friend, but I can hardly wait to get our vaccinations can start hugging each other's neck. Same, same here. <laughs> can't wait. I'd hug her now, but for COVID as a thank you for letting us do this today. Oh, indeed. We indeed. really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, guys. Each week, you or each podcast, you and I talk about something that's been in the news uh, that we think is significant and that our listeners uh, might look at or follow. And uh, I want to set this up just a little bit before I actually go into the article, because it's an article that's on CNN from uh, Friday, February the 5th, yesterday, uh, in, in relation to our podcast today. Uh, but many times in uh, our country uh, today, especially, you hear people talk about their First Amendment rights and about uh, the right to free speech, which, is, of course, is very guarded and was so guarded by the founding fathers that it's included in the very first uh, of the Bill of Rights. Uh, we hear a lot about libel, slander, defamation suits, uh, where uh, uh, one party might sue another party for uh, for saying something bad about them or saying something that injures them in some way. And a lot of those are uh, first sort of ill-advised because uh, sometimes 
uh, when you think somebody said something bad about you, uh, truth is a defense and it, and it, uh, it becomes a, a perfect uh, metaphor for the metaphor people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. The other thing is because of the First Amendment, many times public figures, uh, you, you can't really disparage a public, a public figure because that's just part of free speech and debate. But in this article, uh, which is entitled, There is Real Teeth to This, it says legal experts weigh in on Smartmatic's $2.7 billion lawsuit against Fox News. And uh, it is an article about uh, a lawsuit, Smartmatic, who was a voting, uh, provides voting machine, voting technology, and in the wake of the presidential election, with all of the false cries about fraud, has had a number of uh, news commentators who have gone on and reported bad things, wrong things. And in fact, and the reason I'm using this for my article today, things that are just flat out false, things that are not substantiated by any evidence. And uh, in this article, it points out, and I agree, uh, CNN senior legal analyst uh, Laura Coates told Aaron Burnett Thursday night when discussing Smartmatic's $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox uh, that this is the definition of defamation. And uh, she goes on to say that uh, when you're making statements that are knowingly false and you make them with malice and you actually tarnish reputations, it has a financial consequence. That's why you have defamation suits in the first place. Now, uh, I would encourage our listeners to follow this because a lot of times you hear defamation suits being filed, they get dismissed, nothing really comes of them. But I think this is actually one to watch. And I agree with Laura Coates, the CNN analyst about that. And uh, I saw also yesterday that Lou Dobbs, who is one of the Fox commentators, who's been one of the purveyors of that falsehood, that his show was actually canceled. He, I think he got fired you know, from Fox, won't be on the air anymore. So you can already see some of the consequences. And I think it's particularly important because it illustrates that uh, a citizen, even a corporate citizen like Smartmatic, who has been wronged, has access to the courts and has the ability to go in and to, to prove that things have been said about them uh, are wrong and false and that they've been damaged about them. It'll be interesting also to see, I don't know what the calculations are on the $2.7 billion, but uh, they'll have to prove some uh, evidence that they've actually been damaged by that and try to quantify that in a way that a jury can understand as well. So that's my, my article yeah. for the week. Yeah, great article. And um, it also brings to mind another voting machine company, Dominion, who has filed suit here. I don't know if the suit is filed here in Georgia. It may be, uh, but against Rudy Giuliani for $1.3 billion. But Dominion supplied all the Georgia voting machines. Same sort of lawsuit that Rudy Giuliani uh, slandered them or libeled Dominion voting with basically lies about the the uh, accuracy of their voting machine so that we'll be watching that'll be fun to watch see how that comes out yes. um, my my uh event in the law lesson in the law as bill rankin says on his podcast um is about a united states supreme court case that just recently came out called taylor versus riojas and it's a qualified immunity case which is rare for the united states supreme court even to take um, but they did take it. And 
uh, qualified immunity is a judicially created. It's not by by statute or or law, but a just judicially created, meaning judges got together and said, this is the way we're going to handle this. Um, so for those strict constructionists, it's it's an absolute violation of that. It's not in the Constitution, <laughs> not in the not, no legislatures voted on it. Nope. Uh, but they they created it and it, it allows basically it's a get out of jail free card for police officers and qualified immunity has come out come up recently in 2020 because of George Floyd murder um, Rayshard Brooks Ahmaud Arbery you know all these these cases but in this case it, it just uh, it first of all is one of the shortest opinions I've ever seen from the United States Supreme Court I think it was two and a half pages which is telling in and of itself because usually their opinions are like 100 pages. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit about the facts of this. This involved a man, an inmate, uh, Trent Taylor in Texas, uh, part of an inmate in the custody of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And in his um, cell in prison in Texas, it was disgustingly filthy. Uh, there was feces all over uh, the, the floor, the sewer was backed up into a cell so that he was walking in, in body waste, bodily waste. Um, it was just disgusting. And he was so bad he held his bladder for 24 hours because uh, he was scared to go. And eventually, uh, involuntarily relieved himself, causing the drain to overflow and raw sewage to spill across the floor. The cell did not have a bunk. So he was, uh, the, the officers took his clothing off of him because he had soiled himself and left him in a feces-covered cell with the sewage backed up on his feet, um, raw sewage all across the floor. He didn't have a bunk. He had to sleep without clothing in the sewage. Uh, and believe it or not, the trial court and the um, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that uh, that was okay. That was not a violation of his uh, constitutional rights. Uh, to, and, and they even, even argued that it, it was only for six days that he was held in a cell like this, covered in feces and raw sewage. It was only six days, so shouldn't be unconstitutional. Um, and under this qualified immunity doctrine, one of the things a plaintiff has to show is that the law already existed to let officers know what they were doing would be a violation of an inmate's rights. And the Fifth Circuit held, since it was only six days, the officers didn't have fair warning that this would be a constitutional violation. The United States Supreme Court shockingly took the case, because they don't take many of these, and they reversed the Fifth Circuit, which is even more shocking, in my opinion. Uh, and they held any reasonable officer should have realized that Taylor's conditions of confinement offended the Constitution. So he won in the United States Supreme Court, goes back to the, the trial court now. But I, I thought it was shocking that the Fifth Circuit defended uh, the, the, the state of Texas, defended those officers' actions. I thought it was shocking that the Fifth Circuit agreed that that was constitutional. It was shocking that the Supreme Court of the United States took the case. Um, and that the, the inmate won. That was shocking. But maybe the most shocking, there was one dissent. Guess who? 
I, I, I will guess uh, uh, Justice Alito. Clarence Thomas mm. from Georgia. Uh, so that was that was probably not shocking. I guess it's shocking that any justice would dissent to say that didn't violate an inmate's constitutional rights. But um, a, a, a good win for for the little guy, I guess, in the United States Supreme Court, which is obviously very, very hard to do. And but perhaps I, uh, perhaps a little crack in the uh, for the long term mm -hmm. prospects of uh, qualified uh, qualified immunity, although to be fair uh, to the courts. Uh, the, the, the Congress could end qualified immunity uh, if, if, if it wanted. The, the Congress and the president all acting in concert could end qualified immunity uh, if, if they wanted to do so. And they have uh, ended other doctrines in the past, you know, like employment discrimination, you know, yeah. uh, fair pay, that, those types of things. Yeah. Well, that's all I have, Lester. That's all I have. I guess uh, until next time, uh, when we see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who helped bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.